So we are going to cover the book of Revelation today. And I was introduced by my daughter to a terrific website called The Bible Project, which goes through uh, every book in the Bible. And uh, Revelation is clearly one of the most difficult books in the Bible to read. Um, It is... uh, followed closely probably by Ezekiel and um, Daniel, but uh, we, we focus more on Revelation because it is in the New Testament. So I will tell you that uh, my friend and uh, awesome <laughs> technician, Steve McFarlane, uh, did this for us in uh, copying this, uh, what is it, eight, 11 and a half by 18, I mean by 17, uh, paper of what this website does. And the way it teaches is that as Tim Mackey goes through the book and gives his lecture, these pictures, these cartoons are drawn as he's talking. So you really focus on what he's saying. It's just terrific. Well, uh, we're gonna. The reason I hand this out, or ask Steve to hand it out, is because we're going to go through this. And uh, as I've told the class before, I've never had an original thought in my life. And so I'm <laughs> going to. Uh, I'm using this. I'm using the lecture that uh, Tim did. And uh, so I give full attribution to him because I think that that for a one class treatment it is one of the very best. Uh, coverages of Revelation that I've ever seen. So that's how we're going to do it this morning, okay? Let me open with prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this uh, great time together. Thank you for these dear friends. Thank you for motivating all of us to know you better. And uh, thank you for opening our hearts and minds today, as you promised, so that we may understand your word, especially in this challenging book of Revelation. Okay, so... What I want to do first is I just want to give you kind of a feel for the author, the historical circumstance, and the literary genre that's used here. Uh, This is written by John, the beloved disciple, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John, and the first three books of John, John 1, 2, and 3. And some people believe, no, no, it wasn't John, it was some kind of a traveling messianic Jewish prophet. But nevertheless... uh, it is, uh, it is a terrific book that was written during the reign of Domitian. Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. And after Nero, he was one of the most energetic and cruel persecutors of the Christians. Um, and so persecution was at a high point during the time of his, his, uh, his reign. He was only 30, 30 years old when he took the, the reign, and he was 46 when he was assassinated um, in 96. This book, Revelation, is the Latin word for apocalypsis, which is the Greek word for uncovering a secret. So, kalupsos in Greek means... Uh, something hidden, something concealed. And apa means to go away or to get rid of something 
or to go away from something. So you're going away from or you're uncovering this thing that was concealed. And so we hear, when you hear someone saying, oh, the apocalypse, well, all that means is that's a, that's a type of literature that is uh, characterized by symbols, very weird symbols, sometimes really kind of bizarre symbols, and many signs. It was a very popular type of literature back at this time. And that's what John writes. And he, he tells us right up front, he says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And that's the name of the book. It's not revelations with a plural. Um, it's a revelation. And the full name of it is, the full name of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And the, uh, the, the type of work that he did um, is, is also described as a prophecy. He also, in the first chapter, says this is a prophecy. And uh, it's really uh, interesting that it's important that we take a look and see exactly what prophecy means in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 10 through 12. I want to read this to you because it's pretty important to see what the Lord says, what God says through Peter, uh, that prophecy is all about. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the, caref- uh, inquiring, uh, about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ uh, within them indi- indicated Uh, when it testified in advance of the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who uh, who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heavens, things into which angels long to look. And uh, this is the New Revised Standard Version, which is why I don't use that too much. Um, So, anyway, so it, John identifies the type of literature in the very beginning. It's a revelation, it's apocalypse, and it is prophecy. And um, so, when he calls the book a prophecy, he is saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets, and that it's bringing all what they said, all what these Old Testament prophets said, is bringing it to a climax in this revelation that he received. Uh, the book opens and closes as a circular letter. Circular letter is a letter that's designed to be sent to a church or to a person, and they would give it to each other. They would pass it off to different churches, and it would make a, a, a big circuit within the region that it went to. This particular one happens to go to seven churches that are in uh, Asia Minor, today south-central Turkey. What's important to understand is that John wrote this letter Two churches that he knew well, and two people that he knew well. These are real people that he wrote this book to. It's a letter, actually. Um, we're going to see that uh, seven is used frequently throughout this, this letter. And seven is a symbol of completeness that's based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. Uh, 
And John has woven seven into every part of his book. So with this opening, John's given us a clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. And the Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John's constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and to study them and find out what these images and symbols he's using mean because he's drawing them all from the Old Testament Scriptures. And uh, so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. So we've got to not forget that this was an actual letter that went to real people who were suffering uh, various things or not living a life that really pleased God. And John is addressing them. So that brings us to the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, and he says he was exiled there because of the word of God, because of his uh, proclaiming the word of God, and he was exiled there. He saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. Now, as I'm going through this, be very, very helpful. I see a lot of you are doing this already. It's excellent. Is see if you can follow that handout that I gave you. Um, and so it's going to start in the upper left, of course, and, and uh, go down in each of the boxes. So he's standing among the seven burning lights. And John's told that this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia. Each of these lampstands is a, a symbol of each of these seven churches. And these churches are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each of these seven churches. Some of these churches were apathetic due to wealth and influence and affluence. Others were morally compromised. The people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. And others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warned, things are going to get worse. That's the point. There's persecution, but it's going to get worse, he said. A tribulation is upon the churches uh, that will force them to choose between compromise and faithfulness. And that's one of the big themes of this letter is it's a challenge. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose faithfulness to Jesus Christ and live the the way that he said, which is to say, love your enemies uh, by being merciful to them, which sounds so contradictory to the way uh, the world thinks things? Or are you going to compromise? Are you going to become uh, participants in the emperor cult, in the cult of, uh, of Rome? By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero had passed, but now, as I mentioned earlier, the persecution under Domitian was in full swing. So the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. Now, it's important to kind of get a feel for this emperor cult uh, thing, where the emperor's eventually required that you essentially worship them by going to a local temple and giving some incense and giving some uh, a sacrifice of some sort. And this was considered to be an act of 
gratitude because the Roman Empire uh, really did provide a tremendous benefit to its citizens. Uh, it built the Roman roads that went every place. It, it, it provided protection from uh, external uh, forces. Um, it uh, provided uh, food and bread by importing it from different countries. And it, it, it just established law and order. It established a, a judicial system that uh, is really the progenitor of the judicial system that we use here. So to not engage in the emperor cult was almost considered to be treasonous because back then um, there was really no separation between church and state. They were the same. And it was considered to be an act of real crass ingratitude. And so, uh, of course, the Christians are told by Paul to honor the leaders and to pay your taxes and to obey them. But he would never say to worship them. And that's where we get in trouble here with these Christians, that they would not do that, or they would compromise and they would do it. So Jesus calls these churches to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer, that is, resist the temptation to compromise. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth, which we'll get to. And so this opening section sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline of the whole book, which is, will Jesus' people endure? And will they inherit the new world that God has in store for them? And why is faithfulness of Jesus described as conquering? So the rest of the book just answers those questions. So then in chapters 4 and 5, we see God's heavenly throne room. And John's got a vision, is receives a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all of creation and all of the human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that is closed up with seven wax seals, and it symbolizes the message of all the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's vision also. These are all about how God's kingdom will eventually come here on earth as in heaven. That's what these scrolls are. And they take all of those Old Testament prophecies is what's in the scroll and show how it is pointing toward this marriage, you might say, of heaven and earth where Earth becomes basically a heavenly place where there's no more crying, no more suffering, and so on and so forth. Um, so what we have is we've really got to return to divine intentions, Old Testament lesson number two. But it turns out that no one's able to open the scroll until John hears someone who can. That's the, tri the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the root of David, he can open the scroll. These are classical Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, this is what John hears. We got this geopolitical warrior, hero, that's going to come in and open the scroll. But John turns and what he sees is not the aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb 
who's alive and standing there ready to open the scroll. So we have this real contrast between what he hears and what is actually going to be the case. And many of the prophets did talk about that, did talk about a uh, very gentle kind of leader, but people didn't, take, didn't consider that very strongly, I don't think, because in our human nature, when we think about someone who's going to resist or oppose uh, strong, evil nations, a slain lamb doesn't seem like a very good opponent for that. And so that's what the mystery is here. So then we, the, uh, the book turns to a description of the lamb. He sees this bloody lamb. It's a symbol of Jesus as a slain lamb, of course. And this is crucially important for understanding the whole book. John is saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat, but it was actually his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with a lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, which is God. And together, they are worshipped as the one true creator, redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. This is a symbol of Jesus' divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Now we turn to uh, three cycles of sevens. Um, And these three cycles are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Some people think that these three sets of divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But what we notice is that John has woven all these sevens together. The final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal, and the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal, and they're all like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of sevens culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each of the set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his future return from three different perspectives. Okay, let's go to the seven seals now. So the slain lamb begins to open the the scroll's seven seals, beginning with the first four seals. And I'm going to have to... Sit down, I'm afraid. My hip is not behaving, if you don't mind. (coughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, So the slain lamb begins to open the scrolls, the seven seals beginning with the first four seals. In these first four seals, John first sees four horsemen. These are the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. 
And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah 2 and Joel 2. And the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? Now then we have a, a, an intermission. There's a couple of intermissions. This is the first of them that answers that question. So John suddenly pauses the action to answer the question, who is able to stand? John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. Now, this is really like a military census, uh, just like in Numbers 1, where you had 12 uh, tribes, and each tribe is 12,000 soldiers. So you got 144,000. It's taken right from Numbers 1. So the number of this army is what John heard, just like uh, what he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations that fulfill God's ancient promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.4. So when you hear Jehovah's Witness and others saying there's only going to be 144,000, that's not the way this reads. That is what John hears. But what he actually sees is a a countless army uh, that are fulfilling the promise to Abraham, a multi-ethnic, huge number of people that are following Jesus. So... It's this multi-ethnic army of the Lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the Lamb's blood. And now they are called to, they're now called the conqueror, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb. I know this sounds weird, but what the promise is is that God will protect us. Yes, there's going to be people killed. Yes, there's going to be martyrs. But... God will end up using all that for his purpose in the end. So the seventh seal. Now the final and seventh seal is broken. But before the scroll is open, the seventh warning, trumpets emerge. And fire is taken from the incense altar. And it symbolizes the cry of the martyrs. And it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. The seven trumpets. We now uh, take a look at the first six of these trumpets. And he basically tells the same story all over again, this time with images from the Exodus story. The first five trumpet blasts replay the plagues sent upon Egypt. That's in Exodus uh, chapters 7 through 11. The sixth trumpet and then releases the four horsemen again that came from the fourth seal, from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations still did not repent just exactly like Pharaoh. Pharaoh never repented. Sometimes he said he would, but then he backed off. So just like Pharaoh didn't repent, these nations don't repent either. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. So now we have a second intermission. And in this intermission, which is in chapters 10 and 11, the scroll's content is revealed. 
An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb's scroll is opened, and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. The first vision is that of God's temple and his martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart, which is an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded, and they get trampled down by the, by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John is following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all use the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, Paul says, Don't you know that you're a, a temple for the Holy Spirit? Your body's a temple for the Holy Spirit? In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision, which is about these so-called two witnesses and their prophetic representatives to the nations. Once again, some people think that this refers literally to two prophets, Moses and Elijah, who will appear one day in the future. But John clearly calls them lampstands, which is one of the clear symbols he uses earlier for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, this horrible beast appears. And we're supposed to go back to Daniel chapter 7 to see what all that means. This beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. So let's pause for a moment here and do a summary of what we've covered so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, by dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church indicating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. This surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. So this gives a pretty challenging view of Christianity, doesn't it? You know, we say that when you turn Christian, everything becomes sunshine and light and sweetness. That is complete heresy. And so, at least in certain times of history, Christians are called to follow their master and king, Jesus, who gave up his life for the world. And they are to do the same thing. And somehow, in some mysterious way, God is going to use that to conquer the nations. 
who have rebelled against God. After this, the last and seventh trumpet sounds, and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation. Now, this sets us up for the second half of the book of Revelation. Who in the world is that terrible beast who killed those two witnesses and waged war on God's people? And how will this whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of Revelation. So, in the remainder of this book, John's going to lay out his portrayal of this beast and the war on God's people and how the whole story ends. And it starts with a series of visions to John. Um, He stops the drumbeat of the sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs in chapters 12 through 14. And the, the word signs actually literally means symbols. And these chapters are absolutely full of these symbols. These visions explore the message in the open scroll in greater depth. The first vision is a portrayal of the real spiritual evil behind suffering and persecution. And it, this first symbol reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that was first proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 where God tells, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. That is to say the woman's offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, he may be wounded, but he wins. He crushes the opponent's head. So the serpent who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed, and they represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and the dragon is cast to the earth. There on earth, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John is trying to show that the show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual forces at work. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. Now, the second vision is that the dark spiritual powers are expressed in the earthly economic and military complexes. And the next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions of, uh, in Daniel 7 through 12. John sees two beasts who have been empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power and conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations. And that's symbolized, that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number 666 on the forehead 
or the hand. And you've heard of that 666 many times. And sometimes you'll see this in uh, different magazines as you're checking out of the grocery store. Oh, 666 means this or that. But actually it was a very easy, this was an easy symbol for, for John. And uh, what it means is, it is this is the anti-Shema. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, this was a prayer that was repeated by all good, good Jews. And here's how it goes. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. This is a very clear reference with the 666 being on the hand or the forehead back to this Shema, as it's called, in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> but now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance, and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. This is very, very convicting, I think, for all of us, is that as we live in a culture that is so anti-God, which are we going to follow? That's exactly what John is saying here. What are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the culture that is about opposite of God in every way you can think of? Or are you going to be one of his true followers? Very convicting. So this 666, where did this come from? Well, John spoke both Hebrew and Greek, of course, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one adds up to 666. John is not saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero was just a recent example of the ancient patterns set out by Daniel. That the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. Total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day. But that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now by Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Now standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. It's in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. Now, interestingly enough, this army of Jesus is made up of the martyred saints. <laughs> and from the New Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. This is the origin, by the way, of the grapes of wrath. Wonderful John Steinbeck book. Throughout all of these signs, sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon 
and follow the Lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its ultimate defeat? Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments symbolized as the pouring out of seven bowls. We know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who still do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh did. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl as the dragon and the beast, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon refers to a plain, an actual plain, in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. We can find that in Judges 5.19 and 2 Kings 23.29. And some people believe that the sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people believe that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John has clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog, G-O-G. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now John goes back to expand on three key themes that he had introduced earlier. Number one, the fall of Babylon. Number two, the final battle to defeat evil. And number three, the arrival of the new Jerusalem. Each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. First, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman, beautiful woman, who is dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon. Remember what that is. That is the descendant of the serpent, the source of all evil. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. She's called Babylon the prostitute. The detailed symbols of this vision will be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire. But he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John is showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false god. This is not something limited to the past or the future. No, it's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylons will come and they will go, leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or of earthquake or of harvest. But now, it's depicted as a final battle, and the account is told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl, where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears as a great hero on a white horse. He's the word of God riding on a white horse, and he's ready to conquer the world. But pay attention. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins. And that's because it's his own blood. 
and his only weapon is the sword of his mouth, which is an image adapted from Isaiah. John is telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. Good world. So we're, just like in Genesis chapter 1, we're to keep, protect, dress, and till this beautiful creation. And those who participated in the ruin of that are going to be held accountable. And the destructive hellfire that these people have unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon. They're brought back to life and they reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. Then after that, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom, they're all destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon in Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. So you see how the author of this describes the eternal lake of fire and these horrible ends as quarantine. So they can no longer disrupt, corrupt God's great creation. Now there's some alternate views of this thousand years. There's a lot of debate about the relationship of the thousand years and these two battles. There are some who think that it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus and the uh, martyr's present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is this. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he will vindicate those who have been faithful to him. So now we come to the concluding action in the book. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride, beautiful bride, that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he has come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that is healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new Garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And then the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of, the God, of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every inch of the new world. And there is a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back at the beginning of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking his creation into new and uncharted territory. Now, obviously, this new Jerusalem 
is a symbol, but I really appreciated uh, my uh, engineer friend, Steve McFarland, who actually did the calculation of how big this place is. Steve, you want to share that with us? Thank you, Steve. Um, that was great. Um, for those who don't like symbols too much, there's a little literal uh, treatment of it. Um, I think it's very important that what we're talking about here is a new Jerusalem. We're talking about a bustling city. And so it's fascinating to me when uh, Socrates was having a discussion with his students and they were trying to figure out what is justice. And they said, you know, we're not smart enough to see it in an individual. Why don't we talk about making a city? And, you know, that way we'll find justice writ large and uh, we'll be able to figure it out. So the book of the Republic is about the construction of this city, this perfect city. And to me, it's, it's fascinating because what you have is you just got a whole bunch of people here who all do different things based on the division of duties. That it doesn't make sense for one person to make his own shoes and to make his own clothing and to raise his own crops. It's much more efficient if you outsource those things to other people who have those gifts to do those things. And then you barter back and forth. So I raise potatoes, somebody else makes shoes, well I give him potatoes and he gives me shoes. He's good at making shoes and I'm good at raising potatoes. And so you have this and of course it gets much more complicated with uh, the technology of the city, but the point is, is that uh, I, I really like this symbol of the city because you've got four quadrillion people all doing something. They're all doing their own business, what they are uh, gifted with, and they depend on each other to have a good standard of living. And uh, I think it's a it's a wonderful picture of what God's final result is. Now, keep in mind, it's pretty interesting because uh, this new Jerusalem, it is a city, and so we've gone from this rural bucolic garden to a city. And, you know, it talks about a, uh, a very interesting evolution, you might say, of mankind as they have greater and greater desires for nice things. So, Anyway, the summary of the whole book this right here is kind of the summary of the first half of the book, which, which I already talked about. But here's the summary of the book as I put down here. Um, John's Apocalypse, again, that means getting rid of something concealed. John's Apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible is ended here. So really, Revelation, it really encompasses the entire Bible. All the prophets, 
Genesis, the covenant with Abraham, is all covered in, in Revelation. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable for Jesus' return. Rather, it's a, it's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches named in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And every generation of Christians since. Now, it reveals history's pattern and God's promises. So the historical pattern uh, that it represents and then discloses is that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon, in quotes, and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. And God's promise. There is a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, the whole world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. There will be a day of reckoning. Jesus will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise, really, that ought to motivate faithfulness in all of us and for every future generation. So that's the book of Revelation. And that's the Bethel course. So congratulations, you finished it. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we are going to meet one more time next week. And um, what we're going to do then is we're going to kind of go over